the key ethical problem that uh, of anthropocentrism is all through the education system. The idea that the only thing that matters is humanity and the rest of the world we share this world with is not seen as having moral standing. We need to make people understand that there is nothing wrong with acting uh, to save the world, particularly with children, as it's your future. We need to realise that it's time for us to give back to the natural world through the way we live our life. Hello and welcome to the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Coconut Thinking. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and today's contributor is Hayden Washington, adjunct lecturer at Pangea Research Center, School of Biological, Earth, and Environmental Sciences at the University of New South Wales. Hayden is a longtime activist for eco-justice. Recently, he has written about the concept of eco-reciprocity, not just taking, but also making sure we give back to the earth and to nature. Hayden doesn't just lecture to university students, he also cultivates wondering and uses wonder and curiosity as means of getting children of all ages to connect with nature. Hayden recently wrote a paper with uh, colleagues on how ecocentrism is the key to sustainability, and I think you'll find within our conversation that he sees sustainability as a step forward, but not as the final step looking more towards regeneration and, again, eco-reciprocity. And this is a complete mind shift away from humanism, away from this idea that humans are the apex predators at the top of the ladder and emphasizing the dynamic relationship we have with nature and humans as part of the natural ecosystem that is there that we all need to cultivate, respect, give back to. I think you'll find our conversation very rich, There's certainly uh, a wealth of experience and knowledge that Hayden brings and uh, so many uh, nuggets of of, of information and things that I was left thinking about as I am going through this idea of rethinking my own worldview, my own actions, my own purpose. And since much of this podcast audience is comprised of educators, it's about rethinking the purpose of education, why we come together um, and do things that we do, learn things that we do. Is there a purpose? Is there another way to conceptualize the world and the ones that we have had that really has created so many problems for the earth, for society, for the way we treat each other. Can we come together and rethink our worldview, reconceptualize it, adopt perhaps different values, understanding that the values that we currently have are just the products of our time? Um, so there's a lot going on, and, and and really a conversation with Hayden brings in a different point of view that we're not necessarily used to hearing in education, only because lack of time, lack of resources. But I hope that it will be valuable. I hope it opens up the ecosystem of education to other points of view uh, and adds to the conversation. As always, we look forward to your comments, to your feedback, uh, and I'll leave space to my conversation with Hayden Washington. Well, hi, Hayden. I'm so um, thankful and uh, happy that you've uh, agreed to be a contributor on our podcast. Um, I just wanted to uh, talk to you a little bit about some of the work that you've done, specifically in terms of um, eco-reciprocity, in terms of your views on uh, ecocentrism, but also about the work that you've done in terms of wondering and, and how schools could be places for wondering. But first off, I'll open up the floor, uh, proverbially, and uh, ask you, who are you, what do you do, and how do you try to make a difference? Yeah, thanks, Benjamin. Thanks for asking me uh, asking me on. Well, I'm an environmental scientist, uh, ecologist originally, and a writer, but also an actual conservationist. So 
I don't know if you've heard of Wallamine National Park, it's half a million hectares. I was one of the key people in the 70s campaigning for five years to create that. I've also been involved with the rainforest campaign in uh, Australia, uh, also Daintree, uh, and also geodiversity, particular rock formations called pagodas. So there is a practical side in terms of conserving nature, but mostly now I'm working in terms of uh, worldview and, and ethics to the extent that ecocentrism as a worldview, ecological ethics as a basis of what's right or wrong, and also the fact that, see, as a, as a scientist, I don't think we're going to solve the environmental crisis unless we can rejuvenate that sense of wonder towards nature, which basically all children feel. Uh, and the other thing recently, I've just uh, been completing a book called Eco Reciprocity, Giving Back to Nature, partly following up the realization that while uh, First Nations peoples talk about giving back uh, to nature, or what David Abram has wonderfully called the more than human world, uh, in Western society and even in Western philosophy, it's hardly ever talked about in, in terms of uh, ecological science, in terms of ecosystem services are defined as the gifts that nature give us, gives us but none of those authors actually say, perhaps we should be giving back to the natural world also, which I think is one of our problems. If we, if we understood that, which most, certainly Australia's indigenous people understood very well, uh, we wouldn't have made so many mistakes that we have. So now I'm mainly working, as I say, on worldview, ethics, wonder, and now eco-reciprocity, this idea we should be giving back. To the natural world. Well, there's a lot there that, that I want to, to pick up on. Um, we do ask all our contributors uh, to help us come together with a definition of, of what is learning. Uh, how do you define learning? Because learning is a word that's thrown around quite a bit, but we don't often have that shared understanding. So in your view and coming from the background that you have uh, and all the experiences that you have, how, how do you define learning? Learning really can be so broad as to be almost meaningless. Um, and so what do we, what, do, what is important in learning? I would say one thing that I've found incredibly important, both as a, uh, a scientist and actually as a poet, is listening. And listening is very important for uh, indigenous people in Australia. In Northwest Australia, there's a word, dediri, which is basically contemplation and listening listening to what the land tells you. I mean, we talk about the muse with poetry. Um, and I would suggest that uh, I've written or most all my, well, most of my seven books on the edge of Wallamai National Park, the largest wilderness in the east coast of Australia. And I've been listening to that place. And I would suggest that I have learned that it's not all just me that's coming out in my books. It's the interaction with place is also coming out there. So uh, the other thing, of course, is for me that's really important is that sense of wonder in, in our learning and our whole education system that uh, sadly is, is often lacking 
Finland's very good in what they do. They actually take uh, children on trips into nature, uh, which uh, interestingly means they've actually got some of the best education results in the world coming out of Finland. But there's also an issue here of two things that I've written, uh, or one that I've written quite a lot about, the problem of denial. There is a lot of denial in our society of the key aspects of the environmental crisis. Overpopulation is one of them. Uh, overconsumption is another. Um, and the need to talk about ethics and worldview is a third. And the other problem is the idea of endless growth. But we're going on a finite planet, apparently, we're going to grow physically forever. I mean, I've talked to primary school kids, kids and asked them whether they think that's going to work. And their response was, oh, don't be ridiculous. Of course, you can't keep growing physically on a finite planet forever. And yet, our society is doing that. And often, our education system is supporting that. So I think we need a lot more critical thinking and getting people to think for yourself and breaking through the, the taboos. There are a number of major taboos that I write about uh, in my books. In my last book, 2021, is called What Can I Do to Help Heal the Environmental Crisis? And one of the key things is, well, you've got to stop denying the key aspects of that crisis. And our society um, has been very good at denial over the last, uh, well, a couple of hundred years, really, but particularly in the last 50 years. Uh, and students, I mean, it's very, I'm very refreshing to see Greta Thunberg and the school strike movement, etc., because we need that critical thinking that leads uh, to action. So in other words, not just accepting whatever is in vogue, and believe me, there's a lot of that in academia. <laughs> um, so, uh, as, as Paul Ehrlich has observed, as one of the world's greatest environmental scientists, there's a lot of sloppy thinking in academia, and that also spreads over into the school system. For instance, uh, where is the discussion of, uh, major discussion of population is not happening in a whole lot of uh, learning discussions because it's taboo, people don't want to touch it. Over consumption, we're doing better. And I find this incredible because, of course, almost all Indigenous cultures did see it as having uh, moral standing. In fact, they saw non-human species as peoples um, having the same rights as human people. So it's, um, yeah. So learning needs to consider all those various things, I feel, because at the moment, uh, the learning it's been said, I think David Orr, the environmental educator, said, we're turning out a whole lot of dumb people who are supposedly highly educated, but they don't ask questions. They don't uh, test the taboos that they're given. And uh, they don't seriously consider. A lot of scientists think that ethics has nothing to do with science. And of course, it does. All scientists have worldviews. All of them have an ethics. They just won't often tell you what it is, but it is influencing how they act. And actually, in the conservation 
area, conservation science currently, there in fact there is a strong and growing movement of anthropocentrism uh, in, uh, in science, which I and other colleagues seek to respond to. But uh, for me, the idea that conservation is just about humanity is uh, inconceivable, that it is also about the nature that you're conserving. And this is where I also write about ecological justice, because justice should not just be limited uh, to humanity. It should be include the rest of the world. And, should, and they have to be entwined. I mean, basically, as a scientist, humanity is 100% dependent on nature to survive. So we have no choice. If nature goes down, we go down. But in fact, nature is going down. And people like E.O. Wilson, the world's greatest biodiversity expert, point out, we're going to, if we keep going this way, we're going to lose half the world's species by the end of the century. Some people point out it could be long before the end of the century. Um, and most people don't know that. And, I, and, and when I tell that to people, a lot of them go into denial. They don't want to believe it. Or, or the other part, the other half are really shocked because they should know that. And so why weren't they taught that in school? The actual... Um, the serious nature of our predicament that we are in environmentally in the world is not coming out through most of our education systems. And so, in other words, we're not learning one of the fundamentals. For instance, in, in Aboriginal law, the basis of Aboriginal law is the land. The land is critical. And the same as I understand it from reading a number of US First Nations peoples, you can't ignore the land. It has to be the basis of, uh, of everything, of your, your culture, of your legal system. Um, but of course, we, we're, not, we're not doing that. We, we're ignoring uh, the rights of nature. We're not seeing justice as being uh, integral, something that should be entwined. We need to integrate, and I actually wrote a book called, oh, ed, co-edited a book, sorry, called Conservation integrating social and ecological justice, because they're two things we should, because we actually need to do it on a pragmatic level if our society, society is going to become sustainable. So it's a bit of a long answer, Benjamin, <laughs> to your um, question, partly because there are so many things involved. But yes, I, I think what you're trying to access is very important because there's a lot of supposedly learning going on in the world and yet things are getting worse and we're not actually uh, uh, solving those key problems because we often deny them. In fact, if we could break through denial, that would be one of, one of the key things. Now, I know in the education system, you could say, oh, well, they can't, it's too early for them to deal with the denial. I, I don't think it is. I think dealing with reality is important at every level from kindergarten on up. One of the things that you mentioned that I really want to pick up on, and, and there's a lot of things that, that really are, are worth unpacking what you said, but it's about this, this question of taboos. And our taboos come from stories, come from narratives. And one of the things that I've seen, uh, noticed in, um, in, in education with COVID, and there's a lot of narratives out there, and, and, and we'll, we'll certainly pick up the piece about the, uh, the, uh, the uh, anthropocentrism and, and how animals are, are made human but not treated as human in, in, that, in, in education, and, and the sloppy thinking that comes from that. But the question of taboos, and, and I'm thinking specifically about technology, and I, and I noticed in, 
education right now, there's so much money being put into ed tech and how uh, with COVID, there's, you know, uh, AI is going to save education and, and online meetings are going to save education. The hybrid uh, learning is going to save education. But in many ways, it's the same narrative about the environment. Technology will help us eventually, if we just wait long enough, technology will get us out of this environmental crisis. And this is a lot of the stuff that comes out of the Gates Foundation and others. Technology will help us just, just hold on, guys, we're almost there. Where are we going with this whole, how can we break this idea that technology will be the savior of the planet? Actually, I'm not even going to say the planet. I'm going to say the savior of humanity since it is an anthropocentric view. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's the quick fix, the, the ultimate quick, quick fix scenario that uh, if you've got, you've got climate change, you just do geoengineering technologically, even though most of it has not been very successful. Um, yeah, well... I mean, look, I think there are not, I agree, technocentrism uh, is, and techno-optimism is a huge problem uh, that we face in our society because we're not actually willing to accept that we are way beyond limits and, and, and technology can only prop things up a little bit further uh, before things are going to essentially collapse. Um, so, I mean, Richard Louv, who wrote the book, uh, Last Child in the Woods, uh, about the problem of nature deficit disorder, points out he's not, a, he's not saying that people shouldn't be in the virtual world. He's just saying his point is if you're going to be in the virtual world, you need to spend at least that much time out with real nature uh, as a counter, uh, counteract that. And, of course, we're not doing that, and our education system is by and large doing that. I had a friend who was trying to take primary schools out into the parks in the Blue Mountains here, out from Sydney. And of course, in the end, I mean, he was doing it uh, from his, he was retired from his own resources. In the end, he couldn't, he couldn't get any funding from schools whatsoever to actually go out with the children and actually be there for a day out in nature to try and counteract uh, this, this idea of technology is going to solve anything. And of course, you've got uh, you know, the whole hype about going to Mars, that somehow this is going to be something that is wonderful. Look, you know, I like science fiction, but I do realise it's science fiction and that it's not actually something we should aspire to uh, for science reality. So I don't think we're going, obviously kids are often wedded to their computers uh, or mobile devices, but if you can get them out into wild nature, I have seen them also respond uh, extremely well to that. And they need help to do that. And that's what schools can provide. It's what community organisations, private organisations can help with, and, and many of them do. But look, I don't, yes, there's no simple, simple question except for it to be aware in education that we do need experiential education of wild nature for all children to actually build that bond with the non-human world. And, and there are ways you can support that, and in Finland does in its school system, and some other private school systems uh, also support that, such as Steiner, um, but we can do far better. One of the things that my wife, Charlotte, who's uh, pursuing her ed doc right now, she's writing or going to write her dissertation on uh, the idea that we use animals in the classrooms uh, 
in a um, in a way that gives them all the human characteristics. And by doing so, by making them more human, uh, we are actually devaluing them because we aren't respecting them for the place that they have. And by giving them human characteristics, it, it makes them cuter, but it, it disconnects us with when we actually see uh, uh, an animal there. What, what are your views on this going forward with, with, with this idea of, uh, of, um, of, of sloppy thinking, of, of the way animals are treated in, in maybe children's literature in schools? How, how are they making the animals more human? I was just wondering, how, what do they actually do? Well, for instance, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, the Easter bunny uh, who hops around with a basket, uh, throwing uh, eggs around and, and things like that. Or I'm thinking about um, all the, the pigs that are dressed like humans and, and walk around having conversations. Or all of these ways that animals are taking on human form um, but but uh, don't necessarily. Eat, but they're 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 just there to be cute uh, and to appeal to, to to kids. Sure, and this this goes has a long tradition, of course, with children's stories, uh, doing that. But of course now it's it's sort of rife where you can have uh, what's think maybe a cute koala in Australia uh, will be Blinky Bill is one of the characters of koala in Australia. It's all over the place. When in fact our koalas are in major strife and, and now a threatened species. Uh, and yet there's no connection uh, between the two that, as you say, children are looking at these really cute uh, animals uh, that they're seeing. And when in fact the real animals uh, are going extinct in the wild. Um, now, I mean, I guess one thing I'd suggest is let's get them out and actually meet real animals <laughs> uh, and, and on an interactive basis or in real nature. Um, it, and I know in some places that can be much harder than it may be in Australia, but that breaks through uh, this idea that, uh, I mean, look, I, I visited Alaska in 2005 and, uh, you know, there were people there who wanted to go up and hug a bear <laughs> um, just because, you know, Yogi Bear on, on the bears are these wonderful, cuddly things. Um, and yeah, it's a major disconnect um, with reality. And we've also had uh, tourists being eaten by crocodiles in the northwest of Australia because they were convinced they were animatronic and not a real life animal. So, yes. Um, but I, I don't, I mean, yeah, the use of animals as human-like figures in stories is not going to go away, but I think which makes it even more important that children get out to see real animals in real wild or semi-wild situations so they can interact with them. And then there is the idea uh, in eco-reciprocity uh, with Indigenous peoples that these are, these are peoples themselves. These non-human animals are persons or peoples. They're not people like us. They can't talk, mostly. I mean, we all know dogs talk with their eyes, etc. But um, the fact that they are, deserve as much respect as other persons and people do. And that's something that could be introduced right from kindergarten on up, because I think that is basically the natural response of children when they meet 
these more than human persons, uh, whether it's a bird or whether it's a fox or whether it's uh, a wallaby in Australia, uh, all sorts of things. Uh, that sort of deep connection. And what I find interesting, there's a fair amount of evidence that if, if that deep connection is not made by 12 or 13 in the child, it can be much harder to make it later on, that deep connection with nature. And that's why it's so important that primary schools need to provide that opportunity for children to build that deep connection with the natural world. But as you mentioned, anthropocentrism is, is everywhere and throughout the school. Um, and there isn't, and I'm going to use your word listening, there isn't that sense of listening to nature. It is about how we can improve uh, the lives of humans, how we can improve lives around us. Um, there, you know, it's embedded, you know, the whole education system and the whole school narrative is, is uh, embedded with humanism. That is that humans are at the center and, and the, the highest forms of life. Um, I mean, how do you suggest go about deconstructing that narrative within schools? Because it requires doing that throughout society and, and having such a revolutionary shift in values. Um, where, where do we go? How, how do we get the kids thinking about nature before the age of 12? Well, yeah, I, I do, do have an article on uh, wonder in education, which uh, goes through a number of points that you can do. But I think we can learn something from the Steiner education system. And I must admit, I went to a Steiner school as a child. But in terms of the three things that, okay, facts is one thing. That's one part of the triangle. The other two parts are imagination and creativity. And they're trying to keep those alive in the child, not just being dominated by learning facts, you know, in terms of a rote fashion. Um, so I think that is uh, uh, quite, most, a lot of the people I went to school with, that's had a long lasting influence in terms of the way they, they look at the world. So there is uh, uh, something there of value, but even just, I mean, it is throughout our whole evolutionary history, we have interacted with the non-human world and built connections to it. It's only in the last hundred years, 200 years that we become increasingly isolated. So key thing is, as I say, in Finland, they do, I think it might only be for a few days, they'll go away uh, in primary school, two natural areas, necessarily wilderness and not necessarily totally uh, the most natural places, but it allows the children to be out in wild nature and to start building those connections which come naturally. Now, of course, parents can also do this. Doesn't, I'm not suggesting it be only rely on uh, the education system, but uh, yeah, I mean, no one's going to uh, cut people off, children off from their tablet or their computer, but if they are given the chance that we all, well, in my age group, we all had in Australia growing up, we for walks in nature and got to meet um, black snakes and echidnas and wallabies and wombats, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if they are given that, then there is the chance, well, there is, uh, based on experience, that is a countervailing 
pressure to that deep anthropocentrism. I mean, if you ask most children, does your dog or cat have a right to exist, or turtle or whatever they might have, um, or is it just a plaything for you? Most of them will say that it does uh, have a right to exist. I mean, I had a primary school group where I said, okay, I've been here for an hour. How many species do you think went extinct around the world? And they said, don't you mean week or month or year? No, I said, based on the evidence that somewhere between 10 and 20 species went extinct in the last hour. And I said, does that matter? I didn't tell them. <laughs> does that matter? And they said, yes, it's terrible. Why? Because it's just wrong. So in other words, they got the ethics of the situation, that it was wrong to be sending all these other beings, these other species extinct. The problem, I think, is, is going through puberty and through our education system, they get effectively brainwashed uh, to think another way. So that's why we, um, uh, we have to break the taboo and talk about this. The fact that we are ignoring ethics, we're ignoring the importance of worldview, we're ignoring nature deficit disorder in our children, and that is not helping us to reach uh, an ecologically sustainable future. So yeah, I'm not pretending it's going to be easy, Benjamin. It's obviously it isn't because we're, we got there by this entrenched. Uh, and all I can suggest is that, well, there was a lot of when I, when I published the article on wonder in education, there was a lot of interest from uh, a number of uh, parts in academia, basically because from what seems obvious to me had not been given enough discussion. And I think eco-reciprocity, the idea that we need to give back to nature, again, uh, most kids seem to uh, be able to accept the idea, but as a society, we've very much uh, ignored it. And I don't, and I think, as I say, we're not going to reach a sustainable future unless we realise that it is time for us to give back uh, to the rest of life we share this world with, because when it comes down to it, I've never actually met anybody who said, I don't care if half or two thirds of life goes extinct on earth. I'm sure they exist. I'm sure there are people like that. Most people don't want uh, that to happen. Some of them will deny that it is happening when you provide them with the evidence from the top biologists in the world. Uh, then they turn around and say, well, why haven't I ever heard this? We need to do something to change it. So what you're doing, I would argue, is uh, part of that change process. And look, it's, uh, it's a very positive process, and it is a challenging process, as I'm sure you're aware. I certainly understand it's, it's challenging. I'm working with a group of academics around the world promoting ecocentrism. We have a statement of commitment to ecocentrism on the Ecological Citizen uh, website. We have about a thousand signatories so far. Wouldn't it be great if it was a hundred thousand or a million? Uh, because um, that's what we need. But I also think it's a very hopeful sign when people like people like Greta Thunberg stand up at how old was she? 15? And actually become activists to change the world. I started at 18 as an activist. So bravo, Greta, you started at 15. Good on you. <laughs> um, Tell us more about, uh, about wonder in education, how that ties in. What, what are some of your thoughts and contributions to the field in, in this area? Well, 
again, it's not, uh, as a number of people point out, like such as Richard Liu, you don't have to get children out into the, you know, Yosemite or Yellowstone or Wrangell St Elias in the US or, or Wollamai in Australia into these huge natural areas to make connections. You might only have an acre down on the corner, which is uh, a largely natural area where children can go. I mean, I've taken people, even though people in Ralston, Kandos, you live on the edge of this half million hectare World Heritage National Park. Many of them, when I took them to a local traveling stop route, which for me as a plant ecologist was pretty degraded. There are still a whole lot of children there who'd never actually been close to mature trees and, and, and semi-natural areas. So even your local acre, hectare somewhere is still going to be a place of wonder for most children to explore because they still, as provided, they've still got their imagination, and most kids do, uh, and their creativity, they will um, build those bridges with nature. Uh, and I, I think it's really sad that, you know, Australia is the second most urbanised country in the world after New Zealand. So that's, that's a real worry. It's really sad, but um, that's why um, education systems have a chance to turn things around. Now, I do really like I've written to ACARA, the curriculum body in Australia, about a sense of wonder, and basically they just, uh, they just never responded. So yes, I know we've got, it's a huge task. And for my part, I, I'm, uh, yes, talking about wonder, publishing books on it. And, uh, and also beyond wonder is the related thing, the idea that we need to give back to the natural world, which has given us so much. And that's the book that I'm just trying to get published at the moment called Echo Reciprocity. So tell us more about this, tell us more about this concept of echo reciprocity. Well, in some ways, it's just simple. It's, we talk about reciprocity. We talk about the golden mean uh, or do unto others as they would do to you. If someone helps you, you want to help them back. The trouble is most definitions of just reciprocity are anthropocentric. They're just within human culture. Um, in indigenous societies, they open what's been called, what Peter Singer called the moral circle. The moral circles be widened to include the rest of nature. So that uh, uh, nature is giving all this stuff, clean air, clean water, food, uh, beauty, spiritual connection. And so we also need to give back to nature. And that can be a whole lot of ways. Key one is gratitude. We actually need to have gratitude to express thanks to the natural world. Pretty we actually need to have gratitude whole, whole to express thanks uh, to the natural world. Don't do it. Uh, for instance, uh, Arnie Nace created the Deep Ecology Workshops, which is, uh, and the interesting thing is a friend of mine is John Seed, who did a lot of them in Australia. And he went over actually and did some uh, ceremonies with the Hopi and other tribes in the US. And about halfway through, he turned to, I think he did it with Joanna Macy, and um, said, this is just like our deep ecology workshop. And he talked to some of the Hopi later and they said, yeah, well, he said, why do you do this when you're actually quite a connected to nature society? And he said, because no matter how good your culture is, 
if you don't have a regular uh, ceremony, you tend to lose sight of just how much you've been gifted by the natural world. So they have ceremonies where they give thanks to that world and uh, connect back to it. And uh, look, I've always been had a very strong connection to nature, but every time I do a deep ecology workshop, I realise that I'm actually getting back to the roots, that it, we need to be reminded of that. So those are ceremonies. There's obviously you can do, uh, you know, going out into nature as uh, uh, nature rituals, rite of passage rituals. Uh, there's all sorts of things that can be done, and some of them are pretty interesting and exciting. But key thing is, let's stop denying we have a problem and let's actually talk about it. And the best way to reconnect our children to the rest of life on Earth so that they value that life and actually act to protect it. And in this current, there's all sorts of uh, other ways one can, one can give back, uh, and it's going to be different for different people. I mean, I've spent a life being involved with conservation to actually protect areas, but obviously I don't expect everybody to do the same. Um, just by talking about it, by breaking the denial, by, by talking about it and actually uh, arguing that the rest of nature has a right to exist for itself. Um, and most people then find a lot of other people actually agree with them, except they never knew that because you don't often see this portrayed in, you certainly don't see it on commercial TV, very rarely anyway. And, and that's the thing, it's, it's about this passing to action. It's not just about talking good game or accepting it or, or saying it's, it's about action. And one of the things that we try to say uh, in our blogs and in, uh, and in our podcasts is that uh, one of the issues with education is that they could fill your brain up with a whole bunch of stuff but unless you act on that stuff, it means nothing. It's like potential energy, but it only becomes kinetic energy when, when you act. How, how can we rethink curriculum and imparting knowledge as a dynamic process with action uh, in order to, to achieve some of the goals that we want to achieve, which is to take reciprocity and, and, uh, and, and make it less anthropocentric and... Uh, and, and be more in harmony with nature. Well, yeah, I, one of my, uh, my last chapter is actually the eco-reciprocity of acting. So of, of, of taking action because, I mean, I've been an activist all my life. Uh, so it's the eco-reciprocity of activism is my last. And a whole lot of people, um, they think that doing anything that is political is, uh, you know, like a bad thing, a bad word, bad actions. So they run away from politics, which is such a pity because what we need now is a politics of healing. Um, there's also so much reticence. I'm a scientist and so many sciences are so reticent about standing up and making statements uh, that we need to change things. It's, it's improving, but... Uh, it is still bad. I think the other thing is the understanding of small meaningful steps, which is a thing uh, uh, Stuart Hill, who's a, a social ecologist at the University of Western Sydney, uh, talks about. Uh, he's a friend of mine that most of us tend to think 
if I can't actually make a huge grand statement, a bit like, you know, you're the knight that goes out and kills the dragon and suddenly everything's fine because the dragon's dead. Life's not like that. I've been involved as an activist since 1974. The small, we got Wollamai National Park after five years of small, meaningful steps, talking to groups, talking to people, taking people bushwalking, which all build up. And I think people need to understand that everybody can take small, meaningful steps. And the other aspect is there's this, uh, there's this nasty three words or four words, really. It's too late that is out there, which gets brought out. And of course, it's not too late. It's never too late to do the right thing. I mean, okay, the species that go extinct, it may be too late for them, but it's not too late to stop others uh, going extinct. And, you know, I'm a big advocate of nature needs half, where if we want to protect 85% of the species on Earth, we need to protect uh, half of lands as protected areas. Uh, and again, it's interesting because even there, there are people who are not arguing that on ecocentric grounds. And in fact, uh, Aileen Christ and a whole lot of other people, we've already tried to submitted a paper to conservation biology on an ecocentric rationale for nature needs half, and they wouldn't accept it. They, <laughs> so it's now gone off to another journal, which shows you the problem of the anthropocentrism. Um, so my point is also that it's never too late. Uh, the solutions are exciting and positive. They're also challenging, but that's where uh, we need to make people understand that there is nothing wrong with acting uh, to save the world, particularly with children, as it's your future. And that's where this current movement is very refreshing because it's long overdue for school kids to stand up and say, what you're doing is not good enough. No, I mean, thank you so much. It's been really rich and really informative. I, I guess this is the part of the uh, of the podcast where I kind of leave it over, over to you and see it's, it's, it's a bit the et cetera section of some of the things that um, you're thinking about, that you're doing. You, you touched on some of them, but, but what are the next steps for you, Hayden? Well, look, I've spent 40 years as a, as a conservationist and environmentalist um, as well as an environmental scientist, so uh, working on, you know, basically activism, political lobbying. My role now, as I see it, because I also have some health issues, is writing. And uh, uh, so that's where I'm focusing. And uh, recently, as I said, I realised that very few people had actually, uh, uh, Robin, Robin Wall Kimura has, who's uh, a Potawatomi person in the US. She's also an ecologist. It's written about gratitude, the need to uh, give back, but not many people otherwise have really been talking about, we need to realize that it's time for us to give back to the natural world through the way we live our life. Uh, so you'll come still involved in uh, uh, some activism, but the actual sort of I'm not so much going to see politicians or writing letters as more or less as writing articles with a group of activists of, of academics around the world promoting ecocentrism, promoting ecological ethics and uh, in ecological justice. That's taking most of my time uh, because uh, they're 
uh, well, basically this group didn't exist before, and now with uh, Helen Kopnina from the Netherlands, Ron Taylor from University of Florida, uh, Patrick Curry, the chairman of uh, chair of uh, the Ecological Citizen, Joe Gray, who's also involved the Ecological Citizen, and others, uh, Jack Piccolo from Karlstad University. We're writing papers challenging this dominant anthropocentrism, and we're getting some positive response. So uh, I can feel that that is a useful, uh, positive, uh, small but positive step that I'm. I'm spending most of my time on at the moment. Well, listen, Hayden, thank you so much. This has been really informative and, and really it's it's uh, hopefully going to bridge um, uh, the gap to use a, a cliche between K-12 education, university education, and um, and and also really what's out there in the ecosystem. So so this is something that is, is our work, what we want to do uh, to get kids outside of the classroom physically, intellectually, ethically, morally, uh, by, by getting in nature. So, so thanks so much for, for being a, a contributor to the podcast. Well, I think that's a fantastic project. So uh, I wish you uh, tremendous success. Thanks so much. And it's been lovely talking to you. This has been the Meaningful Learning Podcast by Coconut Thinking. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and I want to thank Hayden for being a contributor on the podcast. And I want to thank you for listening and uh, being part of this experience. We're really trying to think about education uh, and really just our lives and our role within uh, the human species, within the animal species, within uh, the population of the earth, the inhabitants of the earth and why it is that we commit to thinking and action. And specifically, uh, when we are discussing education, which is, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the majority of the audience of this podcast, we wanna think about how it is that we can move forward um, and rethink of schools and the purpose of schools. Why are we learning? What is learning? It's at the heart of some of these episodes and specifically how do we improve the welfare of everyone within the biocollective that is everyone who has a shared interest in the healthfulness of the planet this is a massive issue it's a complete way of uh, rethinking the world i certainly don't have all the answers but i love having conversations and and uh, hopefully um this interactions is going to be productive so if you have any uh, contributions to make any thoughts that you'd like to share any comments any questions anything that you'd like to open up please visit us on www.coconut-thinking.design or email me text me whatever it might be and i look forward to those conversations uh, in the meantime uh, have a great week and uh, we'll see you soon